in Paul's second epistle to this church, chapter 4, verse 16, he makes this statement. And I want to use it as sort of a, to, to give us the principle upon which we will walk into this passage. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. In this verse, Paul draws a distinction between the outer self and the inner self. We might call the outer man and the inner man. The outer self, it seems he's referring to the physical body and the things that relate to it. The inner self would refer to what we call the soul or the spirit and the things which relate to it. And so for the Christian, again this is a Christian view of things, what he's saying is that as time passes, the outer self is going to waste away. It's going to be in decline. But the inner self is renewed day by day. It will be on a steady incline, steady growth. The principle is that the outer man and the th things done by the outer man can and will diminish all the way to the point of death. All the works and activities of the outer man will cease, but the inner man is renewed on a daily basis, day by day, and at death, the soul is made perfect. So it's, it's almost like a, a crossing of two different lines. Or, I don't know how, what it looks like to you. But the, the outer man is on a steady decrease, wasting away to the point of death. The soul is always on a steady increase. And the irony, I think you can see, is that the soul in our, uh, in our experience, the soul will be at its apex, its highest and most glorious point at the moment when the death is at its worst point, or the body is at its worst point, the worst point. When the body dies, that's when the spirit is, in a sense, set free. But you have these, this distinction between the outer self and the inner self. Though we cannot separate them except by death, they are always connected, the outer self and the inner self. As long as we're living, there's always a relationship between these two. But if we were forced to place one of these in the place of priority as it pertains to the work of redemption in this life, I think it's safe to say that the place of priority would have to be given to the soul, the inner self. Because redemption starts with the inner man and then begins to produce outward effects. And even while the outer self is wasting away, that inner, that inner working, that inner self is still being renewed day by day by the work of grace. The inner self and the outer self are always connected, but the inner man or the inner self takes the lead. Now again, this is not to the neglect of the outer man or the works done in the body. Again, what I'm saying is if we were forced to say which one of these in the work of redemption in this life takes the place of priority we would place the priority on the inner self, which then gives its effect to everything else. And so when it comes to our dealings with God, we should understand that it's the activity of the inner self that takes the place of prominence or priority. Let, let me give you an extreme analogy. Imagine an invalid. They are at home. 
They cannot move. There's no one to help them. They can't come to corporate worship. But they sit there while others are gathered for worship, yearning and longing and desiring to be within the gates of Zion, desiring to be with the people of God. And even laying there alone, they are able to worship and pour out their soul to God. Compare that person with another person who's perfectly healthy, attends worship every Lord's Day, is always where the saints are gathered, but doesn't want to be there. Is not interested. Is completely uh, careless as to what's actually happening in the worship. Hopefully it's easy to see that the invalid, though the outer application of the inner man is, is, is not able to be seen, that's more pleasing to God than the person that does all the right outward stuff but has no inward desire. And this is the Christian view of things. But the problem is we tend to get things reversed. We give the priority to the outer self and its performance. Or, at the very least, we separate these two and we separate them so sharply that we almost imagine there's no connection between the spiritual and the physical. Think about Cain the one who killed his brother, Cain. As the story unfolds, we find out Cain was not a believer. Cain was not a Christian. And yet he could not understand why God wouldn't accept his worship. Cain's attitude was was like this. Well, I did the right thing. What more do you want? Now, we could argue back and forth, did he really do the right thing? But that was his attitude. Well, I came, I brought something. What else is there? We, and we tend to think similarly. We tend to think that the actions or the involvements of the outer man in some sort of religious activity are sufficient to please God whether our hearts are in it or not. And our attitude is very often, I did the right thing, God. What more do you want? Now, this very often leads to a religious life that is separated from everything else in life. The outward duties that attend one's belief system, the cultic rituals, and by cultic I don't mean the, the, the unbelieving cults, I mean as, as regards worship, the cultic rituals or prescriptions of the faith, for many, do not extend beyond their practice. In other words, I do the right thing and I'm done. There I did it. And so, and this is why many people can walk into worship, a worship service like this, and go through the routine of worship. Hear the call to worship. Pray. Stand and sing. Sit down. Hear the scripture. Pray. Stand and sing. Stand to hear the word read. Sit. Hear the preaching. Go to the Lord's table. Pray. Sing. Go downstairs. Have lunch together. And then hop in the car and leave. And for many of us, our tires barely hit the pavement on the road and we have completely forgotten everything that just happened. Like we did not actually just have dealings with God. Our, our mind is completely forward. What do I have going on in the afternoon? What's traffic going to be like? What's, what's happening here? What's happening there? It's like God is nowhere in the picture except in the place of worship. We Go about our merry way with everything else we have going on because we are able to build this wall between the cultic, the religious, the actions, and then everything else in life. 
And before long, our, our basic line of reasoning is that affirming a few truths and t- tending to a handful of religious rituals is Christianity. I hold to the 1689. I go to Reformed Baptist Church. And for many people, that is the substance of Christianity. To do Christian things makes you one a Christian. That's, that's the thinking. That's wrong thinking. But this is how somebody can profess to be a Christian and still live in sin. And we've all known people like this. And, and sometimes it sort of baffles our minds. And there might be somebody here who's like this, and, and we, we just don't see it very clearly yet. We don't know it yet, but we've all known people who, they go to church every Lord's Day. They're a part of the, the church. They sit, they listen, they sing, they pray, they go about all of the circumstances of worship, and then perhaps that very afternoon or that evening or the very next day, they will be involved in things that are unquestionably opposed to the law of God. And in their minds, it doesn't matter. There's no relationship between the two. In their minds, they are a Christian. They think they're going to heaven. Now, a real Christian will look at them and and, and say, I I can't comprehend the, the disconnect here, but for them, there is a separation. And if you were to ask them, what makes you a Christian? How do you know that you are a Christian? They would say things like, I go to church. I subscribe to a confession of faith. I sing the songs. I read my Bible. I pray. In other words, they would begin to list all of the things that they do that constitute that what I would call the the, the cultic rituals of our faith. In their minds, all of these outward activities are sufficient. And every other aspect of life need not be affected by those things. Because for them, there's religion and then there's everything else in life. They draw this hard distinction. This is because for them, a Christian or being a Christian is something they do. Regardless of whatever else they may or may not do. Now, the problem with this is this makes Christianity to be like every other religion in the world. Every other one. It has, every other religion has its cultic practices, its rituals, its beliefs. You have to believe certain things to be a Muslim. You have to believe certain things to be a Buddhist. You have to do certain things. There are, there are activities that come along with that religion. Every religion has those things. But the problem with every other religion is... There's no power in it to actually alter the appetites of the inner self so that people can say, I subscribe to this religion. They go about all of the the practices of worship and then outside of that, there's no relationship to what has just happened. When people do this, it, it makes it simple for them, if they think this way, it makes them simple for the, it makes it simple for them to profess to be a Christian, do Christian things, and also satisfy every lust of the flesh. And if you said, are you a Christian? Yeah. For a lot of people, that's that is the substance of Christianity, is if I ask you, are you a Christian? Yes. You think that that made you a Christian just then because you said it. That's not true. 
That's the non-Christian view. That's the erroneous view. Now, this type of person will very often, they can very often be found fighting tooth and nail about whatever particular dogma they subscribe to, while at the same time utterly blind to other things. Imagine a businessman who refuses to miss church. He's there every time the doors are open. But yet in his business, he lies and cheats and steals in order to make his profits go up. He abuses his employees or something like that. We, would, we, we, we think, how can, that, how can those things go together? It's because he's made this separation. Or imagine the, the mother. Maybe I don't have to say mom. Maybe I can just say the lady who would not be caught dead in a pair of yoga pants. But she knows all of the gossip. And everybody knows if I want the gossip, I'll just go to her. She's got her dogma. Well, I don't, I don't dress like that. I've got standards. But then over here, no standard. How can that be? Or imagine the man who would this very day plant his flag and die on Mount Calvinism and then go home and waste away his life playing video games. Or a man who spends every morning with God and every Sabbath on the golf course. We say, how can that be? Hopefully, when I describe these types of people, you you think or you recognize these things ought not to go together. These are incongruities. And yet, for some people, they go together perfectly well. Or you might imagine a church that subscribes to the Apostles' Doctrine and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then Monday morning, they're taking one another to court over petty, insignificant disputes between them. See where we're going? There's a, there's a hard line between the religion, the cultic, and everything else in life. This idea, this false way of thinking severing the spiritual or religious from everything else in life brings us into the front doors of Corinth Reformed Baptist Church as Paul's epistle was being read to them and they got to chapter 6 verse 9. Now I give all of that introduction before we get to the passage because when you're just reading through this passage and maybe I'm the only one But as I would read through this passage many, many times, I thought, what in the world does verse 9 have to do with anything else? Is he just hopping all over the place here? What Paul is doing here is actually quite simple. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want to show you what he's doing. So first, keep all, all of that introduction in your mind. The first thing we see is Paul makes a transition to give a warning. A transition in order to give a warning. Look at verse 9a. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, the question when we read that is, how does that connect with what he just said? Or or what he's been saying? Well, look back at verse 1. He had just said... When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So there, remember, 
he draws a distinction between the unrighteous and the saints. They're two different groups of people. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. That word unrighteous, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous? That word unrighteous is the same word we have here in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And, and there again in verse 9, he's enforcing this sharp contrast between the righteous or the unrighteous and the saints. The unrighteous are not going to go to heaven. The saints will. There's a, a, a great difference between these groups of people. So he mentioned the unrighteous there, but then he said in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now that word wrong, you yourselves wrong, is the verb form of the noun unrighteous or unjust. So we could read it like this. Verse 1, does he dare go to the law before the unjust instead of the saints? Verse 8, but you yourselves act unjustly and defraud even your own brothers. Verse 9, do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here's Paul's line of thought. There's a sharp contrast between the just and the unjust. Then he looks at the Corinthians and he says, you're acting like the unjust. And the unjust don't go to heaven. See that? Now, the other option is when he says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about the outsiders and their law courts. Well, why would he be writing that to the Corinthians? That doesn't make any sense. He's talking to them. He just said, you're acting unrighteously. You're acting unjustly. You're taking one, over to one another to court over petty, insignificant matters more than likely to try to extort out of one another more than is what you you're rightfully do. They were acting unjust. In other words, he says to them, you're acting like the kind of people who will not enter heaven. You profess to be Christians, but your actions are the actions of non-Christians. That's what he's saying. Now, Paul knows that the Corinthians are at a crossroads at this point. When people who claim to be Christians act in their lives... In, in ways that should, that should only characterize non-Christians when Christians act like non-Christians, or I should say professing Christians act like non-Christians, you've got one or, one, of, one, or, one or two options. Either you have a true Christian who is acting dangerously inconsistent, or you have a false professor who is just showing what they really are. If it's the first one, if it's a true Christian who is acting in a way that is inconsistent with their profession, then what Paul's saying right here, this type of warning will spur them to repentance. This type of thing is used to shock them out of the stupor of their sin. And it will eventually prove successful because no true Christian can just go on and on and on in unrepentant sin. This, this is a means of grace to a Christian to go to them and say, the way that you're living is the lifestyle of a person who will not go to heaven. A true Christian does not hear that and say, well, it's fine, I'm saved. No, a true Christian says, oh, brother, I thank you that you have been honest with me. I thank, that, thank you that you've been clear, that you've, you've, you've not minced words. You've said it, you've laid it out like it truly is. And I need to go and begin to examine my own heart. That's, that's the way a Christian responds. 
This is a means of grace. But if it's the second, if it's a person who's just a false professor, then a warning like this will come and they will just persist in their sin. They'll keep going. And this warning will stand as a testimony against them. They will never be able to say, well, I didn't know. No, you did know. You knew because the work of the law was written on your heart and then somebody actually came and told you. You're living like a person who doesn't go to heaven and you just kept living that way. It will stand as a testimony against them. Now we learn here a few things that I think are important for us to keep in mind. We learn here that true Christians can act contrary to their profession. A true Christian can act contrary to their profession. True Christians can act like non-Christians. It is possible, what I mean by that. They, you have the ability to do that. We have to understand that the removal of our worldly ways of thinking and living is not an immediate or instantaneous act at the moment of regeneration. That all of our worldly and sinful habits and tendencies go away and we are immediately perfected moving forward. We, we know that's not true. Which would imply that a Christian, a true Christian, can in fact act like a non-Christian. But for me to tell you that as a Christian will never serve as a substantial means of comfort. Now, what do I mean by that? Substantial. There might be a sliver of comfort that comes to a Christian when they are reminded that just because they have sinned doesn't mean that God has cast them off. That it is possible for a true Christian to act like a non-Christian. But that will not be a substantial comfort. In other words, we don't sit back and relax on that like a lazy boy recliner. Whoo! Man, I'm glad to be reminded that everybody that I can keep on sinning and there's no problem here. It's not a substantial comfort. But it, it is simply the truth. Christians can act like, do have the ability to act like non-Christians. Why is this not a substantial comfort? Means of comfort? Well, because we also learn here and from elsewhere in Scripture that lost people can claim to be Christians. That, that's usually the scariest part for us. Well, I'm a Christian. Well, lost people can claim to be Christians. Well, you're right. How do I know that I'm not one of those? A lost person claiming to be a Christian. But that can happen. Lost people can adopt religious habits and claim to be Christians we put these two together, what we learn is that the existence of sin in a person's life neither proves or disproves their own profession of faith on its own merit. That, that's not what we look for. If I'm trying to examine myself to see whether I'm of the faith, finding sin all by itself doesn't push me one way or the other. Finding sin... All that is saying is, we've determined you're a human being. Now, there have to be more steps. There has to be more to the question than, is there sin? Because a true Christian can act like a non-Christian. A true Christian can sin. And even a lost person can profess to be a Christian. But the existence of sin, the, the fact that this was evident among them, didn't mean that they weren't Christians. Paul's using a, a common tactic which, which serves as a means of grace to snatch true saints out of their sin. It's meant to generate a response. 
It's meant to stir them up. You're acting like the unrighteous. Don't you know the unrighteous don't go to heaven? That's what he's saying. And when he uses that phrase, do you not know, which he says many times, it lets us know that he's drawing our attention to a very basic and fundamental fact of the Christian faith. Even the immature, very worldly Corinthians should have known this. Do you not know? This, this that he's putting forth is a basic tenet of the Christian faith. There are two races of men, the just and the unjust, the saint and the sinner. There are two eternal destinies for men, God's heaven and God's hell. And there are two ways of life that distinguish these types of people. There is the life of unrighteousness and the life of righteousness. The, 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 the unbelievers, those headed for hell, their life is characterized by unrighteousness. A Christian, those headed for heaven, their lives are to be characterized by righteousness. But again, it's possible for a Christian to act like the unrighteous at times. And that's what's happening here. The Corinthians were acting like the unrighteous. And he's warning them, using the worst possible scenario, to get them to change their way of thinking. He's basically saying, if you keep living like this, you're going to go to hell. That's what he's saying. Now, he's saying it negatively. You won't go to heaven. But positively, what he's saying, if you keep living this way, you'll go to hell. You're acting like an unbeliever. And, and, and many times, we might have to do the same thing, to go to a brother or sister and say, hey, you're acting like an unbeliever. And if you continue down this pathway, you will go to hell. Now, what is our tendency when we hear that? No, I won't. I'm a Christian. I, I can't go to hell. I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace, not by works. True. True. If you are a Christian and you've been saved by grace, that grace will empower you to stop sinning, to stop living like somebody on their way to hell. That is also true. But sometimes we need to hear that. You're living like a person on their way to hell. And that will be used like cold water for a believer to shock them out of their way of living. That's what he's doing. So Paul is here transitioning from rebuking their activity to warning them of the danger that they are in. And because we cannot know infallibly the state of a man's soul, we don't know that this type of means is used to preserve the Christian or harden the unbeliever and actually plays into the work of God's providence in keeping His own or damning the reprobate. We can't enter into God's thinking and say, well, I know everything infallibly, so I won't tell you you're going to hell because, well, you, you, you seem like a pretty good person. We don't know. What we do know is that there are two types of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous go to heaven, the unrighteous go to hell, and there are two ways of life that characterize those types of people. Righteous People, the people on their way to heaven, their lives are characterized by righteousness. People on their way to hell, their lives are characterized by unrighteousness. That's all we can tell people. So he's warning them. The next thing we see is Paul offers a correction to their thinking. A correction to their thinking. Verses, verse 9b, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, anytime you see the phrase, do not be deceived, you ought to stop and ask, what is the potential deception here? He's telling them not to be deceived. Okay, where are they going in their thinking that is deception or deceptive? To understand that, we have to take this, this whole statement. We have a list of ten sins, seven of which were already named in chapter 5. The, the ten sins, sexual, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. We've covered seven of them. The new sins that are named here in this chapter are adulterers. So that would be sexual immorality specifically within the confines of marriage. Adultery takes place when a married man or a married woman uh, act uh, immorally outside of or break the bonds of their marriage covenant. That's adultery. Then we have this phrase, men who practice homosexuality. That phrase is translating two terms describing two types of men. It refers to the active and passive participants in the act of sodomy. Now this would apply to, and that's referring to men, but this would apply essentially to all same-sex lifestyles, everything under LGBTQ, whatever follows that, everything in that category, all of that falls under this. Gross sexual perversion of many kinds. But here specifically, and, and really probably pretty graphically, the men engaged in homosexual activity, and then thieves. Very similar to extortion and swindling. It's it's a person who takes stuff that's not theirs. A thief. Now these, in addition to those that were already addressed in chapter 5, Paul says these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. Don't be deceived. Those whose lives are characterized by sexual immorality or idolatry or adultery or sodomy or theft or greed or drunkenness or reviling or swindling will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is the potential deception? He's saying don't be deceived, don't think wrongly. So what is the potential error in their thinking? where, Where were they headed that he's trying to stop them from? Well, the error... The deception is that those who practice these things will inherit the kingdom of heaven. They were tempted to think that the sexually immoral and idolaters and adulterers and sodomites and thieves and those who are greedy and drunkards and revilers and swindlers will go to heaven. He's saying, don't be deceived. That's not true. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, here's what's striking. He's already said that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now he says, he groups these ten sins together. These will not inherit the kingdom of God. The implication is these are the sins of the unrighteous. These types of things characterize the unrighteous who will not enter heaven. But remember that he also said that the Corinthians were acting like the unrighteous. You yourselves, if we want to do use funny words, you yourselves are unrighteousing one another. You're acting unjustly. See the flow of thought? 
The unrighteous will not enter heaven. You're acting unrighteous. All of these groups of people, including you, the unrighteous, don't think that these types of people are going to go to heaven because they're not. That's what he's saying. Paul groups lawsuits with one another into the list with sodomy and extortion. He says people who do this will not enter heaven. Now the point here, Paul's point is not necessarily to zero in on the specific sins named here. Uh, that would be too easy because most of us at the moment could say, well, I'm not guilty of those sins right now. Many people will use this fact to say, well, look right here, homosexuality, it's, it's right there with uh, drunkenness, it's right there with greed. And they will use what in their minds are lesser sins to justify the most vile of sins. That's the opposite. What he's saying is what you think are lesser sins are actually in the category of the most vile sins. The, the, how, where is the line of how awful these sins are? You don't go to heaven. You're cut off from the kingdom of God for eternity for these sins. It doesn't lower the, our, our perspective on homosexuality. It should elevate our perspective on extortion and swindling and thievery and things like that. They're all awful. But the point is not, well, let's pick apart these particular sins. Paul's emphasis is the thinking of the Corinthians. He just said, do not be deceived. In other words, the Corinthian problem was not merely that they were guilty of these sins, even the most vile of sins. The Corinthian problem was that they had been deceived into thinking that those whose lives are characterized by these sins, including taking one another to court, might still go to heaven. What's happened in Corinth? What kind of thinking could possibly be behind the idea that the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, those who take one another to court, put it all together, the unrighteous, what could possibly be behind the idea that the unrighteous will still have a welcomed entrance into heaven? That is so contrary to everything the Bible teaches. I can live how I want to, but I'll be fine in the end. That is contrary to the what Paul would say, the ABCs of the faith. So what's happened in their thinking? Well, they have begun to think, it doesn't really matter how you live, as long as you got the right religion. By religion, I mean external forms, professions of faith, dogmas to be believed and held with, with white knuckles. As long as you do the right thing and confess the right things, it doesn't matter how you live everywhere else. This mindset separates the outer man from the inner man. It says, do these things and you're a Christian. Regardless of whatever else you might do, as long as you're doing these things over here, you are a Christian. Christianity is only about a change in the outer man. Christianity just revol results in a few cultic rituals. And the Corinthians were used to this. They come from paganism. This is what they knew. Walk into the temple, engage with the prostitute, sacrifice the animal, do your thing, go about your day. You've done it. 
That's, that's their, their world. They had brought this into the church. And they'd begun to think, well, we do all the right religious stuff, so it doesn't matter what else we do when we walk out of here. Picture the Corinthians. Picture this group of people. They had brought their worldly wisdom into the church. They gathered into cliques, were quarreling with one another. They despised Paul for his lack of showmanship, but they loved their so-called super apostles. There was sexual immorality among them. They reveled in what was probably a free grace mentality that allowed sexual immorality to continue in the church. They used secular law courts to bring unjust penalties on their brothers and sisters. We'll see in, in chapters to come, they were doubting the resurrection. That group of people also had been enriched in all speech and all knowledge. They thought themselves to be spiritual. They were judges of the best teachers. They were ready and willing to separate from unbelieving spouses if they needed to. They boasted in their use of spiritual gifts. They would show up and scarf down as much bread and wine as they could at the Lord's Supper. Everybody came to church with a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a, tong, a song, or a tongue, and an interpretation. So they, they, you see the picture. They're coming to church. When they get to the church, everybody is spiritual. Everybody's got something to do. Everybody's got something to offer. They're so religious in all of the forms of, of worship. But then when they walk out the door, they're... they're almost as immoral as the society that they came from. They had so much religion, so much of the outward showy parts of Christianity, but they were suffering from abysmal morality. They lived like the unrighteous, and they thought that that was fine because they thought the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. Those, those lifestyles, that doesn't matter as long as you do the right things over here. Their lives were an ethical disaster, but they had religion. They had the form. Now, when you read the old writers in the stream that most of us appreciate, when they say religion, they don't mean it like this. They mean pure and undefiled religion, true piety, godly Christianity. This, we would... We would this is more like the way the term religion has been abused in our culture where everybody says Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, right? It's a religion about and subsisting in a relationship. But it is a religion. There are things that you do as Christians. So I want to make that clear. They had religion. And by that, you might go back into the old black and white shows or something like that where you'll see somebody and you'll say, well, he, he got religion. Well, how do you know? Well, he don't cuss anymore at work. Now, that might be an effect of true conversion. It might just be that he's decided that he shouldn't talk that way. They had the form. Now, this problem is a little easier to see in a, in a more concise example like we see in Proverbs chapter 7. We meet a woman dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She says to a young man who passes by her door, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you, to, to, to lead him into sexual immorality. What, what, what did she just say? Hey, I went and worshipped today. I did all the religious stuff, so here I am. I've covered all the religious bases. Let's, let's move forward. She had offered her sacrifices, she had paid her vows, and she immediately runs headlong into sin and even taking another with her. William Gurnall 
commenting on that little story, says this, quote, She durst not play the harlot with man till she had played the hypocrite with God and stopped the mouth of her conscience with her peace offerings. And that's what it is. I want to live the way I want to live, but my conscience is eating me from the inside out. So I'll go to church. Then I can live how I want to. I'll cover myself. Charles Bridges calls it the varnish of religion. Using religious activity as a cover for one's sins. Another illustration we see in John 18. Those who had arrested Jesus sought to kill Him using all manner of unjust tactics. Just get the man dead. And yet they say, or we read, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled and could eat the Passover. You're trying to unjustly put a man to death in secrecy? Breaking all manner of laws of God, but you don't want to defile yourself because the Passover is coming up. See? In the process of the greatest sin ever committed, they were strict to their religious convictions. The Passover is coming. I can't defile myself. And this was the sin of Corinth. A complete separation of religion and morality. The idea that as long as I do this or that, and you could name the form. Regulative principle. As long as I follow the regulative principle. As long as I profess this or that. Second London Baptist Confession, Westminster Confession, whatever it might be. As long as I, I profess the right thing. I'm free to go about my merry way and whatever sinful passions or desires I have. I follow the regulative principle. I, I, I believe the confession. That's, that is, in essence, the same as to say, I've offered my sacrifice. I've paid my vows. I can do whatever I want on Sunday afternoon. After all, I went to church this morning. I can spend my money however I please. After all, I gave God His 10%. I can speak to people however I please. After all, I sang extra loud at church Sunday. This is the, the, anthem, the ancient anthem of the hypocrite. I do all the religious stuff, therefore I've earned my right to act as I please. It's the notion that what I do outwardly makes me a Christian or that I can make myself a Christian by what I do, that a person makes themselves a Christian. The error that a man makes himself a Christian and secures his eternal destiny with God simply by plugging in a few statements of faith, plugging in a few religious practices, attending certain gatherings, standing firm on a few dogmatic viewpoints, and there you have it, I'm a Christian. Me and, me and God are on good terms. And all of that can happen. Again, this is the erroneous thinking. All of that can happen. A man can make himself a Christian and it never affects his lifestyle, his morality. He goes about his merry way in every other thing as he pleases. Charles Hodge says that it is evident that among the members of the Corinthian church, there were some who retained their pagan notion of religion and who professed Christianity as a system of doctrine and as a form of worship, but not as a rule of life. All such persons, the apostle warned of their fatal mistake. 
He assures them that no immoral man, no man who allows himself the indulgence of any known sin can be saved. Now that's, that's strong language. This is a strong warning. This line of thinking is totally contrary to the saving activity of Jesus Christ, which starts with the inward transformation of a man. The whole inner self is radically changed and then from that results in all of life transformed. Christianity is a life of devotion to God, not just little religious things. The Christian view is that it is not a man that makes himself a Christian by a few religious add-ons. No. The Christian view is that God makes him a Christian by changing his nature, by taking out his heart of stone, giving him a heart of flesh, and then that same God causes that man to walk in his statutes and obey his commandments. That's the Christian view. And that's exactly where Paul goes in verse 11. Here Paul describes salvation as the source of behavior. Verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. And he's saying, you used to be like that. That used to be you. You were... Formerly, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Paul says that was the, that was the old you. The ways of the unrighteous used to be your ways. Some of you here, maybe you, you hear that list and it sounds like somebody's reading off your resume. That, that, that was me. You used to live that way. But then there came a point in your life where something changed. It was not that you decided to get back in church. That'll send people to hell all day long. Well, I needed to get back in church. It wasn't that. It wasn't that you decided to get right or you realized, oh, I'm getting old. I really need to settle down and plant my roots. For, for the good of my children, I need to find some consistency. Because none of that produces real change. That, that won't change your whole worldview. Paul says, yeah, you all used to be the unrighteous. You used to act like the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice he doesn't say, and such were some of you, but you started going to church and you read your Bible and you prayed and you sang loud and you did family worship and you learned the catechism questions. He doesn't say that. He says, such were some of you, but something happened to you. It wasn't what you were doing at all. It's what happened to you. You were washed with the washing of regeneration. You were purged of all sin and guilt. You were sanctified. You were set apart 
by the gift of God's Holy Spirit implanted in your soul. And you were then, through faith, declared righteous before the God of heaven, not because of your righteousness, but because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Again, all of this is the saving activity of the Spirit of God acting in the name of Jesus Christ, applying all the benefits of His accomplishments to you. The Spirit of God came and took all that Christ did and He dumped it on you and made you a brand new person. Paul is describing the great and lofty and really incomprehensible realities of the saving work of God upon the soul of a man. And he's saying, this is what makes a Christian. What God does makes a Christian, not what you do. What God does. And this, what God does, produces a radical alteration inside the soul of a man, flowing out into the whole life of a man. When God does this, everything changes. It's not, some, it's not a few little things you changed. It's what God did. Paul's point is this. If what he's saying is true of them, I don't think we have to believe every person in the church of Corinth was a true convert, nor that every one of them were lost. I would, I, in, in the, the spirit of, of Christian charity, I think we would assume those of them who profess to be Christians and who were growing as members of that church, we ought to assume they are Christians. And if what he's saying is true... If they had been made Christians by God, then they will not continue to act like the unrighteous. Things will change. Maybe not instantaneously, but things are going to change. You, you, you don't settle into this mindset that the unrighteous will go to heaven. No, they won't. You settle into the mindset that wherever I find unrighteousness in me, I must take it to the Lord and be washed and be cleansed of it. If what he's saying is true about them, then they cannot continue acting like the unrighteous because the power and virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has been imparted to the believer by the Spirit of God by which they will mortify the deeds of the body and live their whole lives to God. And that's true of every one of us here. If you're a Christian, you will be mortifying sin. You will be growing in holiness. A true Christian doesn't have an option in the matter. Now, we must work. We must strive. We must work out that which God is working in us. But God doesn't save a person and then just leave us where we are. We will be changed. And that's what He's saying. You're not who you once were. Being a Christian is not the same old me with a new religion. Being a Christian is a brand new me with entirely new affections and desires and loves that will then work itself out for the rest of my life. So again, we never find Paul straying from his normal course of action with struggling saints. He points them to who they are. He points them to what God has done to them. He points them to the great change wrought in them by God's Spirit. And that is to be the motivation for how they live. Don't, he's not saying, live a certain way and you'll be okay. What he's saying is, no, God has already done something to you, therefore you will live a certain way. These soaring theological ideas of washing, 
And sanctification and justification are, for Paul, the bedrock of his entire philosophy of morality. The foundation of Christian morality, or living according to the commandments of God, is the supernatural work of God. The Christian view is not live a good, moral, upright life, and maybe when, it's all, when we get to the end, God will let you into heaven. When we get to the judgment, God's going to tally up. And if, it, if, it, if your goodness outweighs your bad, you'll go to heaven. No, that's not Christian. If you're going to heaven, your name's already written. It's already settled. The Christian view is what God has done for me in Christ and what God is doing in me in Christ will lead to an ever-increasing sanctification, a holy life. The greatest motivation to holiness for a Christian is to remind them of who they are and of where they stand with God and what God has done to get them to that point. So some of you here may be drifting or flippant in the way that you think about your life outside of this little, I guess we could say, off this property. There might be some sins that you feel are acceptable in small amounts because of other areas of religious devotion. I, I did certain things. On the Lord's Day, in between these hours, I did these things. Therefore, outside of those hours, I'm free to indulge and live as I please. I spent all day at church, so I can indulge a sin for a few hours. I read my Bible this morning, so I can demand a little more respect from my spouse. I remembered my catechism questions, so I can talk back to my mom and dad. No, that's the unchristian way of thinking. That's not the way a Christian thinks. And remember the principle that when we would do good, evil lies close at hand. As we aim for holiness and walking with God, there's always going to be an option. There's always going to be a temptation lying right there close to go into some sin. And it's a, a very dangerous place to be when the services that we render to God drive us away from Him rather than toward Him even more. I spent all day at church, so can I not then run away and do as I please? I read my Bible, so can I not run this way and do as I please? Duties with God, pushing us away from Him, that's a very dangerous place to be. Worship with the saints ought to cause us to desire more worship with the saints. Time in the Word of God should make us long for more time in the Word of God. Learning and growing ought to cause us to yearn to know more and more this God that we're learning of. It shouldn't push us away. It should always draw us in further and further. It's a dangerous place to be. And you must remember Paul's warning that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Perhaps there's someone here who's bought this lie that you can make yourself a Christian by doing Christian things. If I obey mom and dad, if I clean my room, sit quietly in family worship, go to church, answer all the elder visit questions properly or decently, if I do all of that, I can make myself a Christian. Or maybe you just... We'll say it, fine, I'll be a Christian. I'll go to church, I'll read, I'll pray, I'll sing, I'll do the Christian things. I'll make a profession. If somebody asks me, are you a Christian? I'll say yes. 
That's the lie that you can make yourself a Christian. The truth is only God makes a Christian. Only God can make a new creation. Only God can do that. And the idea behind that lie is really that it's a, the ancient heresy of self-righteousness or self-salvation, self-justification. I can save myself by doing religious things. If I do all the right things, God's good. When I get to heaven, He's not going to let some. He's not going to send somebody to hell who done all the right things. That's self righteousness. He will absolutely send somebody to hell who did all the right things because you didn't do the one most important thing, which is trust in Christ. The truth is that only Jesus Christ can save a sinner. His life is the only one that will be factored into the equation of the salvation of anyone. The life of Christ. What did He do? His death alone can atone for your sins. Not more religion. Only Christ. And until you understand that you're a sinner and that you are unable to change yourself, that for all of your religion, it, it's really vain. It's, most of it is probably an offense to God. If you can't admit that you are the sinner, you will not come to Christ. You won't come to the only one who will save you as long as you think, I can make myself a Christian. If I keep doing the right stuff, surely I'll, I'll generate enough Christianity or, or, or stir up enough power to then roll me into a saving relationship with God. That will not work. So I'll close with this, a, a genuine appeal, if that's you, stop trying to save yourself. Just stop. Rest your soul on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what He'll do? He'll save you. That's what He does. Let's pray together.